Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast, where our ultimate goal is to inspire, educate, and awaken your curiosity, and overall, to help you to become healthier and happier. We're Dave and Steve, identical twins who started a veg shop nearly 20 years ago. Since then, it's expanded into a social following of over one and a half million people, nearly 50 million views of our videos, nearly half a million books sold, cafes, farms, apps, courses, food products to help you to eat more veg. We speak to thought leaders, health experts, trailblazers and specialists of all kinds, from the ones you know to those you've never, ever heard of. This week's podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. We've been wearing them for six years and genuinely they are our favourite shoes and that is all we wear beyond being barefoot. Yeah, they're really, really great. They've tons of different varieties. Uh, you get 15% off with the code HAPPYPAIR15. And if you don't like them, what do you do, Dave? You can send them back within 100 days. No risk. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So if you're interested, vivobarefoot.com and the code is HAPPYPAIR15. I'd love to jump into like entrepreneurship because that's that's probably the way that we've kind of come across you and known about you is really your journey into using entrepreneurship to kind of, you know, as a means of, evolving your own evolution economic freedom economic so freedom you the freedom with which you want to explore in yeah. essence and we, we had a great chat in the sauna there yesterday and you were talking about how in your late teens early 20s you were depressed i wonder can we go back there and start mm-hmm. from there that you were depressed in that you grew up in this uh, i'll allow you talk sorry I, I grew up in a a very religious household which was also a spiritual household so there was like I'd say like mystical experiences. Some people's religious upbringing is very boring, you know. And um, uh, but I chucked it all once I went to university. When you said mystical experience, now that drew me in there again. Yeah. Like, is that people having like you know? I think a mystical experience they're kind of almost like awakenings or realizations or enlightenment divine healing, type moments divine. or Ouija boards. You know, any of that kind of stuff. So every religion has a mystical tradition within it, whether it's Islam and Sufism or whatever. And, and Christianity has different sects, sects of religions that are um, more or less mystical. And so in that, in that branch, yeah, you're feeling the unconditional love of God or Jesus or whatever. That's a very kind of common one. Um, so yes, it was a very, it was, I say it's a confusing upbringing because there was, there were these legitimate, I would say legitimate spiritual experiences of the, the fundamental nature of the universe of, of oneness and unconditional love and all this, but mixed with a lot of dogma that I, I came to believe was really not true. And so humans aren't very good at isolating uh, a bug in the program or an error in the mind and just getting rid of that one error. We tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I chucked the whole thing and then ended up uh, a nihilist, somebody who didn't believe in any kind of meaning whatsoever. This is your early 20s or late mm-hmm. teens? Or? Must have been 21. And so I, I literally believed that evolution was nothing but blind, random chance, and that you know, it made a lot of mistakes. If you listen to the traditional story of evolution, there's just things, a lot of defects, a lot of mutations, and some of them are great, and most of them are terrible. You think of most, most mutations, they're awful. Uh, and humans were the one creature that had accidentally mutated to have an intelligence just above the threshold at which it could contemplate the meaninglessness of its existence. And all of the animals were just below that threshold. So they didn't realize how pointless their life was. And this was just a, this is a terrible mistake that, that evolution had made. And, um, and I, that's a dark place. That's a dark place. Dark. And I, but I had this love of truth 
Uh, and so I wanted to know what was true, no matter how painful it was. And if the truth was that there was no point to existence, I wanted to be the one non-delusional person who would embrace that truth, even though that truth was killing me. Wow. Yeah. And how'd you go from there? How'd you find some meaning in that? The meaning in that was no meaning. At first, I thought the meaning was to go around and free other people of the delusion of, of meaning. Of, I, I, I could find wherever they got their meaning from, whether it was religion or having children or a career or, what, or safety or security or whatever. I could find the, 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 the underpinnings of it and I could smash them. And I thought this was like liberating them to, to understand the truth of meaninglessness. And they would get super depressed and it would really ruin their life. And so I was like, well, this is just aesthetically, you know, there's no morals at this point. There's no morality. So this isn't wrong per se, but aesthetically it's ugly. Like this person was happier before they met me and now they're depressed, right? So I was just like, well, I can't do that anymore. So then I really had nothing to do. And I just, I just laid in bed for a year and... Um, Properly in bed, in bed. Yeah, I mean... I didn't pee myself, you know, it's yeah, like the, yeah. but you really are lying to me, like, there's no point in doing anything, but I, I would be quite uncomfortable if I, if I just, you know, pee myself in bed. So I will go to the restroom. But aside from that, aside from basic bodily comforts, there's no, there's no point to any of this. And I had destroyed my grades in college. I'd, I'd gone in just vibrant and full of life and wanting to study computers and, and science and, um, and having, written a lot of essays on on religion and morality and ethics i'd had a very active mind and now i was i was really listless and um it's a nice word yeah listless listless and i told you guys the story of, of coming out of that but essentially over a three-day period um right before i was put on antidepressants um i had a new kind of realization about that i'd made a mistake that i had um prematurely judged life as meaningless at the ripe age of 21 and i should really wait until the end of my life to just to make that determin determination yeah well, I, mean, I told you guys a longer story earlier yeah but it yeah was, but, it was, was, but it was great because like how you phrased it was and i'd love to hear this there was three nuggets it was almost like a bit like you know um what's like the christmas carol the ghost there was three kind like of riddles to crack yeah. there was three nuggets like and it wasn't necessarily a ghost a christmas future a past but it was three three kind of pieces of wisdom learnings but it's almost like i imagine in the moment they weren't like i now have three pillars with which to live my life i'm sure retrospectively you could you could appoint that wisdom upon it but in the moment there were probably three sentiments in the moment, three... i was each one was a was a sentence which in a in epistemology we would call a proposition a statement that may or may not be true and i was not pleased to see them either because they were couched in religious language. They were all uh, verses from the Bible or the Torah or what have you. So I really didn't, didn't like that these, verse, these were in my head. Um, it's hard not to like tell the full story, but it, it, you know, I, went, I passed all these tests at, uh, at the university uh, psychology center and um, two or three different therapists, they, they all said you're clinically depressed, whatever that is. Um, and I was cleared for medication. A lot of my friends were on medication, especially the really kind of intellectual ones. And, um, and the final psychiatrist who was to dispense the medication, I sat down in his office and he said something that nobody had said to me anytime in the previous year. He said, why are you depressed? It's a very simple question. Nobody had asked that. Everybody treated it as like catching the flu. Nobody says, why do you have the flu? 
they go, oh, you have the flu, right? So it, nobody says, why do you have the flu? So nobody said to me, why were you depressed? And I told him about the meaninglessness of life, exactly what I told uh, you guys. And the first thing I noticed was that it did not phase him at all. Whereas all these other people, it had really shaken them when I really found the foundations of their meaning. This guy was, he just wasn't buying it. He wasn't buying my assertions. And he said, so you want me to put you on medication just because you're an intellectual? And I was like, I guess so. I mean, half the intellectuals I've been studying in school kill themselves, you know, these famous writers and so on. So I guess this is how it goes. You get really smart and then you realize this is pointless and you get medicated. This is, the, this is what it's like to be a human animal. And he, and I, I told you this before, but he said, my concern about putting you on the medication is that you're engaged in a process and the drugs will slow it down. Wow. What awareness. And I've told, I've told this story hundreds of times and people look back at me and they go, that's not what my psychiatrist said. They wrote the prescription. Wow. Um, and so and he, did, did he that feel me, freeing or did that feel like he's denying me of what I need? It was very I, frustrating. Yeah. Because it, it had taken so much for me to even drag myself there to get help, sort of. And I felt like it was kind of like admitting defeat to even go and, and need these substances. So I really felt like I had... I had finally dragged myself to this place to get this magic pill. And, and this guy was for some bizarre reason, like denying it to me, even though they hand this stuff out like candy, I didn't quite understand. So I was very unsatisfied. Um, and he said, he said, I have a suggestion, go home and pay attention to your thoughts for three days. And if you still want the medication at the end of those three days, come back. Jeez, it's almost like a wizard or something. Almost, I like know, it really I, is. I, Just, I went back to see him a month later and he was gone. Did yeah, exactly. You? No record of this guy <laughs> yeah, working yeah, here yeah. or anything. I ha it half feels like that. You Did know? he tell you to go up a mountain and, and, you know, pitch a tent there and stay there for three days? And... No, he just he just said, try not to distract yourself from from what's there, like you've been doing. And, you know, I hadn't gone into um, drinking or alcohol, but I had gone into... Uh, food as my escape. I was literally trying to stay in a food coma for that year. I would overeat huge quantities of garbage and uh, and I would get sleepy and I would just, it would help me go to sleep because uh, consciousness was painful. And this is kind of the roots problem that many people have when they go into uh, substance abuse of any kind. It's that their experience of consciousness is uncomfortable. Their baseline experience is uncomfortable. Yeah. Wow. And then what happened then? How did you, like, what were your three nuggets that you... Yeah, so I went home and I just got out a blank computer file and I just looked at it. Well, something happened before that, which was I, I left the, the counseling center. I got in my car, really confused and unsatisfied. And then I spontaneously burst into tears and I started sobbing and crying and snotting everywhere and laughing at the same time and crying because when you're depressed you're really suppressing a lot of emotion and and weirdly it's like all the emotion I hadn't felt for a year suddenly came exploding out of me and so as somebody who cares about and it lasts about five five minutes this episode in my car and then I had no explanation for what had happened. And as a, as a seeker of truth, as somebody who's very philosophically minded, I now couldn't deny that I had a new data point that I had to make sense of, which was this, this experience I just had. And looking back, what that experience was, 
was that he had shaken my belief in the meaninglessness of life by his response, by his not seeming to buy it, by his not being affected by what I was saying, and by his assertion that not only was life meaningful, but even my experience of depression was itself a meaningful process. He was seriously contradicting without, my worldview. Without actually directly challenging you. Just... Exactly. But it did something to my psyche because that I loosened it loosened my grip and it allowed all that emotion to come back. So I was intrigued, intrigued, right? And so and, I went and, home. And how do you like being a different perspective? Like when you release that amount of emotion, you know, pent up emotion, you're going to feel lighter and freer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So that convinced me to go home and, and do the exercise he had said. And that's when I realized that there was essentially one incessant thought only in my mind. And that was, uh, man shall not live by bread alone. And I, again, I was not happy to see that. I never wanted to hear or think about religion ever again. And that there's this one thought in my brain is a, a religious verse was very unsettling. And yeah, the, the full verse, depending on the translation is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so I'm just kind of, it's like turning this riddle over in my mind all day. Why this sentence in my mind and as I cracked the code on it or decoded it for myself, it meant that you need more than materialism and um, a, a meaninglessness, a meaningless physics guiding your life. You need spirit, you need meaning, you need purpose. And so that, that sentence, you cannot live on bread alone, is, it's like it's saying that's an inadequate diet for your being for your life force you need more than that you, you need, need more than just you're more than a physical creature yeah yeah and Beautiful. so i was just like oh that's interesting okay not buying it i wasn't ready to because i felt really burned by religion you know i felt that like i had my head full of pumped full of lies for you know 18 20 years of my life and so i was i was not like an easy i wasn't going to fold that easily but it was an interesting you know proposition and then i woke up the next day and there was a, another uh, incessant phrase in the mind, and that was, you'll know a tree by the fruit it bears. And as I decoded this one, I saw that it was a, a it was a um, pragmatic statement. And so in philosophy and epistemology, pragmatism is an actual epistemological uh, tool. And that pragmatism, means, as in like how I understand pragmatism, it's like practicality. Like. Yeah, how well a thing, what it, pragmatism says that how well a thing works is some indicator of how much truth is in it or whether there's any truth in it. So if you, uh, you know, if you, if you just feel better after you uh, have gratitude for your meal before you eat it, we don't know what's happening. Is, is having gratitude for your food raising the vibration of it? Is it making the molecules happy? Are they singing? Who knows? But if you say to yourself, look, I don't know what the mechanism is here, but I feel so much better if I take a few seconds before my meal to really have gratitude for it. That's pragmatism. It's mm. saying, I don't, I'm not going to make a claim of what the actual mechanism is, but something's going on here that's positive. I'm noticing that effect. Yeah, same way like jumping in the sea in the morning. I don't know exactly, exactly. what's going on, but it makes me feel a hell of a lot better. Exactly. Yeah. That's pragmatism. And 
so this was a this you'll know a tree by the fruit it bears was a you know 4000 year old pragmatic philosophical statement and that's what i started to realize later on was that um religious books like the bible they're not just full of completely authoritarian myths they're also just full of like really pragmatic philosophical wisdom that's that's sometimes taken out of context and, and made to be religion when really it's just like really wise philosophies in there and so this this one was saying that if you want to know if something's good or not in your life look at the effect it's having on your life and what's so powerful about that is that i was really in need of a way of telling the truthfulness of things in courses of action that were non-authoritarian I was, I was never again going to do something because a preacher said so, or a book said so, or somebody said, I told you so, or I'm an authority or an expert. I, I needed a, a tool by which I could navigate reality for myself without relying on other people. And that's what this was saying. It was saying that this is, this is a tool you can use to navigate reality. So, you know, if you start saying, you know, I'm going to drink five beers a day, you know, from now on, and you look at your life a month later and you're you're sick and you're getting fat and your relationships are crap. Like it's just not bearing good fruit in your life. You don't need to read, you know, a study that tells you what the molecules are doing. It's just not bearing good fruit. Yeah, know? good analogy. So that was a, that was an interesting one. And the the implication though in my in my situation was that this whole philosophy of meaninglessness of nihilism was bearing terrible fruit in my life. Right. All the fruit was rotting. I'd gone to, to I'd been inquisitive and energetic when I'd gotten to school. And as soon as I got a hold of this, um, this idea of meaninglessness, it was really wrecking me. So that's what this statement was saying. It's like saying, hey, buddy, bad fruit, bad yeah, fruit. Yeah. Good one. So the riddle master's doing well. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and that's a whole other question. What is this force giving this? Is it my own subconscious? Is it something Where else? Where is it coming from? Yeah. Where is it coming from? And then the third day, the statement uh, that was incessantly there was, you'll know truth and it will set you free. And I'd heard that many, many times growing up. It's, it's almost a cliche uh, in Christianity. But if you really look at it, again, it's an epistemological statement. And epistemology is the formal study of truth and knowledge. And so this statement is saying... As you attain truth, there is a freeing effect that it has on your being. And so that's a really strong assertion. And so it's almost saying that the fundamental nature of reality is such that truth is a thing and a good thing. Mm. And it's what, how reality works on truthfulness. And the, the logical inverse of that, the negation of that would be um, if you come to believe in falsehood, it will enslave you, mm. right? And so the way I'd been lying in bed for a year, I might as well have been chained to that bed. I might as well have been under house arrest, right? I was, I was in, in bondage to something. And, and so one of the last thoughts I had before everything changed was, wow, does that mean that I got a hold of something untrue? Is it, is it possible that this... Um, nihilism, this meaninglessness, this philosophy is untrue. And that's why it's leading to this, this enslaving effect in my life. And so that was the last one. And once I had all three of those kind of like these three jewels in my hand for consideration, 
as I remember it, the last thought I had was, hmm, interesting. And then I guess the age of 21 is a very early, if not premature age to decide that all of life is meaningless. Why don't I withhold that judgment until I get to the end of my life? And with that thought, I just let my grip relax on this. Was there another, was there another like physical response as in like emotional? Good point. And like in the car, all the energy and emotion came flowing back into my system and even my visual field, everything became hyper color. It's like you got turned on again. And they, this is even a phenomena in, um, therapeutic modalities where they work with serious uh, trauma uh, victims and so on, that when they do a kind of healing in the mind that helps a person process the trauma, they'll say it's as if the color had left reality, it had all gone black and white, but they couldn't really tell that it had gone black and white until the color came back. So this is a widely reported like visual phenomenon. And suddenly you're just like, boom, like full saturation noise. You're just like, Exactly. Like emerging from underwater back up above the surface and go. Oh and if you look God. at it like, hey, this fruit is amazing now, right? Now I'm, yeah. I'm feeling amazing. I'm think I can see amazingly. You know, it's just like it's it's the feedback mechanism is already working, right? And so I felt like the, with these axioms, I now had a compass, and I didn't need to believe in experts or authorities or religious figures anymore. I could just navigate reality autonomous. Very empowering. It sounds incredibly empowering. It sounds almost like there is almost like a rebirth to a degree where there's this and it almost feels like your perspective then is like, well, life is finite. Like I, there's nothing to be afraid of. I'm going to go forth. And well, it's easy now me looking back at what you've accomplished in the last, since you were 21, now being 43, you've gone, wow, you've like, you've made a, you've made a mark. You've made a dent already. Um, did you, did you certainly feel like you were free and you were in your power, like after that, and you were less afraid. Yes. Uh, I remember I had a girlfriend at the time and, um, uh, and I just called her up and I was like, it's, it's over. I'm done. She's like, done with what? You're going to kill yourself. And I'm like, no, I'm I'm done being depressed. Like it, it's gone. And, and all that creativity came back. Uh, I had a natural drive to, since I was young to start little businesses and to, into, into, there was a hunger there. A you were a trader. You had this, you were a hustler. A hustler. Yeah. yeah. And all that came back and, uh, and yeah, I started working on the company, uh, that would essentially. Well, I think, think, I remember you yeah. saying you had, you had three companies at the end of college, you had three yeah. hustles going and you picked the winner, you picked the leader and it was like, right, I'm all in on Pick the best horse. Yeah, I spent I spent the next two years in university starting three different companies, figuring out which one I was really going to pursue after graduation. And they were all kind of computer tech based. Companies. Oh, yeah. 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 Because thankfully, I was a super nerd. I didn't know there was any money in computers. I just was super introverted, too shy to talk to girls and loved fixing computers and programming. And then lo and behold, it turned out there was money. And you in were it. drawn to computers, just as an aside, was largely you were good at maths. It was quite nerdy and it was something that a world where you could control. And even before that, though, as a child, like I grew up in a, in a fairly poor family and uh, um, there were two things I loved. I loved technology and I loved nature and I loved them equally. But what I remember is even being a child, my parents would throw away an electronic or I'd, I'd see a, a, a broken television or a broken uh, radio at the curbside or in somebody's trash and I would get it out 
And I would take screwdrivers and I would crack this thing open and I would just stare at the circuit board. Even as a, even as an eight year old, I having no idea, like my parents are not engineers. They couldn't tell me a thing about it. I would just stare at the circuit board and I'd look at all these colorful pieces that I didn't even know at the time what a capacitor was or a resistor or any of these things. And I'm just, it's like a UFO had landed in the backyard. That's how fascinating it was to me. So that was there since, since childhood. Wow. Yeah. So you, and just because now I know, you, your company, you were way ahead, ahead of your time. Like broadband hadn't come out. There was talk of broadband is going to change the world. How we interact with the internet is going to drastically evolve. This is obviously the early 2000s. And, and your company was largely focused on GPS and transport. I loved computers even before they talked to each other. I mean, just that's how you know you're a real nerd. There was nothing. They were frustrating. They didn't work very well. They were very limited. Just just to give a context, there wasn't a sex appeal. Nowadays, computers, there's Apple. They've changed life fundamentally in the last two decades. Like, you know, and and there's superheroes like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. And these are, you know, tech, computer-based. Like, they're the rock stars of our age to an extent. And there's infinite uses to them nowadays. But back then, the use was like, it's a a calculator. It was a weird hobby. Yeah. So, so you, you could were, say, you could go around and people say, what are you into? Do you like sports or this, that? And you could say, I'm into computers. And it was like, oh, weird. That was like saying I'm into like shuffleboarding or something. Or comic you know? books. Like, or comic whatever. books. They're like, yeah. oh, okay, that's a funny thing to be into. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then little by little, I noticed though, like I, I was working, uh, um, I did some construction for my uncle uh, just to make some money. And I was getting paid like $5 an hour to do roofing jobs where I was literally like 30, 40 feet above the ground, risk, truly risking my life, almost dying, hauling 80 pound bags of shingles up ladders. And I'd get home at the end of the day with you know 30 bucks in my pocket. And then my mom would say, hey, um, Mrs. So-and-so wants you to take a look at her computer. Would you take a look at it? And I say, yeah, sure. And I go over there and I fix this nice old lady's computer while she gave me a sandwich and a glass of lemonade and 50 bucks. And I walk out of there and I was just <laughs> like, wait a minute. You know, but it took it took those experiences to be like, wait, there's money in this thing, you know? Computers wow. are yeah. way easier. <laughs> a glass of lemonade and a sandwich versus an 80 kilo bag of shingles or whatever. Yeah. And then before the internet, you could dial into another person's computer you, and play like a video game against each other using your phone line. Right? So you would just put in their phone number. It would connect to them. It was incredible because the latency was actually quite low. Although most people only had one phone line. So your parents would always pick up the phone and try to call their friends or whatever. And the modem would be going, and then it would ruin your game. And you're like, no, mom. But, But that moment that a friend showed up in a virtual world, even though there were just two of us and we, whatever, chase each other around with shotguns or whatever. This is 20 years ago. Exactly. But you could see where it was going. Just, you were just like, oh, I know where this is going, you know. And then your company. So your company was GPS. Yeah. With transport, which was way ahead of its time. Yeah, like, exactly. So, so in in the in two thousand two or whatever, uh, immediately after coming out of this depression, my mind is just like, and uh, I'm waiting for the bus at school, and I'm like, where the hell is this thing? I've been waiting for ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Sometimes it was a holiday, and it was never coming. I just wasn't, you know, wasn't getting the memo. And I go back and play video games now that were networked on the internet. And, I, and we'd, there'd be these virtual worlds where there'd be 20 of us chasing each other around a virtual world, throwing grenades at each other, Jeeps flipping over, 
really phenomenal technology for the day. And then I'd run out to the, the bus stop and say, where the hell is this thing? I've been, you know, I have no clue where this thing is. And I just started to notice that there were incredible disparities of, of the distribution of technology, that so much of it was being pointed at entertainment and video games and things like this. And there were whole massive industries that were completely technologically illiterate. And uh, there just wasn't anybody who was good with technology wanting to go to some boring, boring industry. So I just, it didn't take me long to to realize why why can I chase my friends around for this frivolous activity with all this technology and we don't know where this million dollar piece of public infrastructure is. And so I was just As like, in I think a, bus. I, a bus. And so I was just like, I think I can I can solve this. And um, so literally had to wi- buy GPS receivers and wire them in. And this is just your own little harebrained idea. I yeah. got it. I can solve it. There was this self agency, this And was it on Trippinarial based at the time? Was it kind of going, I can make a a bit of coin out of this. Yeah, by this point, bump. I'd finally encountered an entrepreneur. And I, it, this sounds funny, but until I was 22, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I really well, thought... Well, it wasn't really a word. Like nowadays, it's like rock star. Yeah. But back even when we studied business, it wasn't really a common term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and even going to the business school, like I tried to take a couple classes in the business school and they were just prepping you to be a consultant or something. So even entrepreneurship wasn't a, wasn't a thing in even the business side of campus, right? And it certainly wasn't a thing on the, on the tech, technology and engineering side of campus. But one day I finally met an entrepreneur. They brought him uh, in to give a talk and it just suddenly my whole life made sense. This guy, he wasn't a super genius. He just had an idea. He saw an inefficiency and he just decided to solve it and every day woke up and worked on it until they had customers and blah, blah, blah. And it just, it was the simplest thing I'd ever heard. And I almost leapt out of my seat because my head was full of ideas for solutions, but I couldn't figure out what course would to take in school to teach me about what to do with you. And I was just like, no, you just do it. You just, you just build the thing. And then you ask people to buy it. Like it's that simple. And I just couldn't believe that it had never really been shown to me that way. Um, so I knew at this point that entrepreneurship was was the way for me. The way just like electricity shot through my body when I realized you could really bust the ceiling that was there in all these other jobs. And I, I was already working at IBM for um, uh, uh, like a year at this point. And so I saw what a big company is like on the inside and how and the little, inefficiencies and middle management. And, and some people, you know, this is where personalities come in. Some people feel really secure in a big company. And I felt the opposite. The fact that I couldn't, decide where the company was going and uh, had no say in the direction of the of the product or anything felt very uh, uncertain to me. Disempowering. In a very sense. disempowering, yeah. So then and you saw secure. the, so you saw the bus, the bus and yeah. like, you know, the expensive bus and suddenly the lack of technology and you went, right. Yeah. And I essentially had to get a, a GPS fix, a coordinate off of the bus and send it to the internet and then send that to people's computers and phones. And there weren't even smartphones yet. So it was non-trivial. This was like, if you wanted to develop an app for a flip phone, there was no app store to go to. And I remember, you know, calling Motorola or whatever, and they treated me like a hacker. Why do you want, you know, the API or the code base or, you know, the, 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 the SDK, it would have been called at the time to, uh, to program this phone. Like, do you, what department do you work for at Motorola? I, mean, I don't work for a department at Motorola. I want to write an app for your phone. It was like, it wasn't even a concept to them. Right. Wow. Um, and then the other issue was that GPS had been a military technology. So the only thing the public knew about GPS, if you said GPS, they imagined, uh, some, some scene out of, uh, 
James the Iraqi con no the Iraqi conflict or whatever right where there's a missile like being guided into a terrorist bunker that's what people knew about GPS was that we had missiles so now it was a scary oh, it was scary. associated with war so when I went to transit agencies and said guess what I'm gonna put GPS onto your buses we're gonna show everybody where they are and then people will be happier and you won't need so many buses because you'll actually know where your buses are and they literally at times said to me what about terrorists like, could terrorists blow up our bus now that there's a GPS? <laughs> I'm wow. not kidding you. This is how, um, and, I, and I would say to them, well, listen, if your bus ran on time, the terrorists would just wait at the bus stop and blow it up <laughs> anyway. You see, there's not really a, a <laughs> thing here, you know, but it was just uh, uh, half my practice was just figuring out how not to insult these people whenever I went in there, you know. Um, and then the other thing they said is, we don't want the public to see where these buses are. They'll see that the whole thing runs like crap. You know, the, the buses are all the, we tell them that they're all spaced out and coming on time. And what you're going to see is that they're all bunched up and they're, you know, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but okay, here's the deal then. Why don't we just show you where they are? And then once you're comfortable and get the system running much better, then, then consider showing the public where they are. And they, and they eventually went for it. And was that a hard process? Because like we know ourselves, once you develop something, what you charge for it is kind of... And how you, you know, sell when you're going One thing it, having a great idea, it's another thing to sell. But then it. when you're going into these companies and going, hey, I've developed this idea, it's going to cost you, I don't know, you've got to oh, make up a number, yeah. $2, $200, $2,000, $200,000, you know. To do what I wanted to do, the way I wanted to do it, I had to charge 10 times more than they had ever paid for anything in this category. So their vehicle tracking was just becoming a thing where where you could get a location from like the plumber or the electrical you know technician's van you know like two or three times a day you'd get like you could get one little update and um and so nobody had had done it in real time and nobody had done it so that you could actually see things move and i was coming to them saying it's going to be just like a video game you're going to see this bus driving down the street and slowing <laughs> down and turning and um so we had to push all the technology harder than it had ever been pushed before. Wireless data was hardly being used. There was just mostly SMS. Um, web browsers weren't, weren't good at making things move inside of them yet. It was all static web pages. So we really had to push the limits of every wow. technology. Good job. But somehow all the stars aligned. The somehow is the, is the super hard work. Um, okay, so it certainly didn't happen by itself. You no, no. And also, um, so, so there was a technological innovation that needed to happen. And then there was also a business model innovation that needed to happen. So I needed to convince these people that it was worth paying 10 times more for. So I invented, I invented a, a category. I called it transit visualization systems, right? So, I just, so if, if you're in like, this is like a little business lesson, but if you need to justify a higher price point than has ever been paid for your category, you need to invent a new category so that people stop thinking about the comparison. Comparing, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so they're like, oh, that's how much a transit visualization system would cost, you know, because it never existed before. So that was the innovation. That was there. clever. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and so anyway, you built this company, like the highlights are obviously the fact that you're here talking about it is you ended up selling it, you know, you did well out of it. And that was like a chapter in your life. Yeah, and it's... What, I mean, what age, took, what age took, were you when you sold it? Because suddenly you, you went from being this nerd who... A 21-year-old. Who buried his head into a business and built a business and made a lot of money and suddenly you were financially free and suddenly you were like... I imagine there was an existential crisis about but that. But what, what anyway. age was his first question? Yeah. It's, 
it's you know how you tell these stories in a simplified way so they don't get of complicated. Course. So let's just say I, I sold it much later, but I achieved financial independence much much earlier. Yeah. As a business, it was just working well, um, and I didn't sell it until fourteen years later, actually. Uh, but it was I had all the all the financial independence that a single person uh, could need long before that, and it, it's it's almost comedic looking back because. People told me this was a bad idea when I was pitching it. Everything from, um, you know, if this was a good idea, somebody would already be doing it, right? That's that's like the kryptonite of, of entrepreneurship, right? If that's such a good idea, why aren't somebody doing it, right? I don't know. People are, you Busy know, in other ways. They're doing something else. Yeah, they don't want to take the risk. Whatever the answer is to that question, it's, it's a really dumb um, statement. And um, there were so many days where I was on the verge of being demoralized because it was difficult to get a company off the ground with uh, very little financing, my own personal savings, and um, um, no track record, no pedigree. Yeah, I guess I had a computer science degree, but I, at this point, but um, um, I literally would look in the mirror some nights after people had, after a hard day where people had told me this is not a good idea, and I would look in the mirror and I would say, "Okay, Josh, what do we know?" Right now, nobody knows where the bus is. Not the people riding the bus, not the people running the bus. And with your idea, if you make that happen, people would know where the bus was. And that's got to be better, right? It's got to be better to know where it is instead of not know where it is. I'd have to give myself this, like, what we now call first principles pep talk. First principles, right? Because the naysayers, you know, will get into your They were loud, yeah, of course. And it's almost like the payout comes because you persevere through absolute hardship and you lonely go through the woods it's like like that expression like life will reward you only after it's trialed you are you only get treasure after trials after trials and it's like you went through some serious trials to get that serious trials and hilarious learnings looking back now that now that you, you don't feel the pain after enough time has passed right but i remember talking to an advisor when i just was really struggling to sell this thing to anybody right and he said how what's the price point and i was like well you know like for this size fleet, it'd be like 300 grand up front and then, you know, 150,000 a year recurring revenue. That's the model I've come up with. I think it makes sense because of how much money they're saving. And he goes, and what happens when you meet with them, with these customers, potential customers? And I said, oh, I'm not meeting with anybody. I'm just like emailing them. And he just, he just falls out of his chair and he goes, you can't sell a kid your age can't sell something for $300,000 over the phone. They need to look at, they need to see you in their office and know that you're a real person for that size money, for that size check. And I was just like, and I was such an introvert, right? I was like the last thing I wanted to hear, but it was like undeniably true. I was like, oh, that makes sense. That seems really... so obvious. Like <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to talk to people. I don't true. like people. I like computers. I, I like code. I was a nerd. I was like, look, you're going to know where your freaking buses are. What more do I need to tell you? Like, it's going to be great, you know? And so I literally, I had to like book a plane ticket and a train ticket. And I just started traveling around and saying the same thing I'd already told them over the phone in person. And then I remember a deal closed on a Thursday, a Friday, and a Monday. And, you were and that was like, it. That yeah. was it. You knew. Yeah, ka-ching, yeah, yeah. ka-ching, yeah, yeah. ka-ching. This is, like, this is like in the movie. This is the part where the, the music takes a different beat. And it's like, yes, it's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've just gone through the dark night. Yeah. Like it's woohoo. Exactly. And then the other funny thing uh, was, again, there's so many hilarious learning experiences in entrepreneurship that you really can't get in a 
in a big company where you don't have that kind of autonomy. So after these three deals closed, I told my little team and I was like, this is amazing. And they're just like, we don't have the money to buy that equipment to front these deals. And I was like, oh, we, we don't, do we? And I was just like, crap, we should have put in that contract that there's a down payment or something, you know? And, and, and it was not in there because it was just like a thing I wrote. It was like a little contract I wrote, you know? So I had to call back each one of them and say, um, you know, due to unexpected demand for our product, there's a slight chance that the project schedule we talked about could slip unless you're able to um, put a, an advance down so that we can keep keep to the scheduled timeline, right? I put it very diplomatically. And each one of them said, okay, that makes sense. And they each mailed a $30,000 check. And I just remember getting mailed on the phone a 30, and I'm just check. like, this is entrepreneurship. Like you just think of a possibility and nobody can tell you whether it's gonna be wrong or right. You have to see what reality says about it. And, and, and you're really uncapped at this point, you know? And so that's just, that's just, that's a thrill you can't really get um, any other way. I, I want to go rogue here because I want to go into the, into the mechanics behind this because everyone listening is kind of going, amazing story, amazing, the story of entrepreneurship. But th there's, there's deeper meanings here. And we got into this when we were chatting in the sauna yesterday about the reality of like, you know, all of us, you know, most of us live in a reality where, you know, there's money, we have jobs, we have rent or mortgages or families or not families. And we kind of have these constraints and whatnot. And your experience was consistently, you were meeting barriers, you were meeting obstacles and you had to keep reimagining things. And we were discussing yesterday the idea of focus and the idea of kind of creation and co-creation and manifesting. And we kind of went in, like those are kind of buzzwords or whatever, but the reality is kind of bringing into life what you really desire and the capacity to do that. And obviously you had a very unique experience at 21, you know, that kind of almost like it is like a, a, a transformational experience. And maybe that kind of wired you differently or whatnot, but you certainly have a very unique perspective on reality and bringing things into reality. And I think that's part of the gifts of an entrepreneur, an artist, any kind of creative person. And I'd love to delve into this because this is relevant to everyone listening. Everyone listening goes, I have dreams. How do I turn my dreams into goals? How do I turn these goals into reality? Yeah. There's one important thing you said, which is that there was a benefit to having and emerging from the dark night of the soul at an early age. Because manifesting something, creating something that doesn't exist, that's an, that's an act of will, that's a, it's a slog at times. But I already knew what it was like to have no purpose and to think of killing myself. So it was certainly better than that. I was, I was undergirded now by this curiosity about life and human potential and wanting that freedom that comes from financial independence, not because I loved money itself, but because I, I loved the idea of having freedom to pursue my interests. So all that was there and I appreciated that. And if I hadn't gone through that, that existential crisis, um, I don't know that those objects, those, those things would have been as attractive to me uh, to pull me through, yeah. Mm. Mm. Good distinction. Yeah. Nice one. And, and even on that topic of like, you know, do you have any guiding principles or any kind of, you know, I'd love to understand if you could articulate your view on creating, manifesting, whatever it is, yeah. you know, achieving things which we want to achieve and bringing them into reality beyond like, you know, 
many of us have come across these books, The Secret, you know, this word manifesting, it, it can be a bit woo-woo, yeah. people like it or hate it, yeah. it's a bit binary, but ultimately most of us have these things which we want to achieve yeah. and they could be financial goals, they could be having a house, they could be becoming a, getting a partner, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And discussing with you over the last two days, it's been like, yeah, you've got a really unique perspective on reality. And, you know, we were even discussing yesterday, you were saying like, I don't know what box I fit in. Like you said, like Simon Sinek is the why guy. I think I'm more like the what guy. And it was like, because you're like, you know, you're into the <laughs> Start reality. Start with what? What the hell is going on down here? That's well, my... <laughs> yeah, yeah, the reality of life, like the nature of reality of life, which sounds crazy, but yeah. like anyone who's listening goes, this guy is really philosophical and super smart. Like you really, really are. And your unique view, your operating system is different to most people. Yeah. And that's what I've observed over yeah. the last 24 hours. And I'd love if you could kind of yeah. even uncover a little bit of that sure. and leave a few breadcrumbs for yeah. us people. Yeah. And what's and what's funny is I can, I can say the same thing in multiple languages. So I can put it in manifesting terms. So first I'll say it like in manifesty language. Okay. Woo-woo. And then go say, woo-woo. Ca- okay, California go, speak or New Okay, Age go speak. California and then yeah. go like, you know, I'm not into woo-woo. And then I'll go. say the same thing in a, in in a science te- technological. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Lovely. So uh, the name of the game uh, for manifesting is alignment. That's the name of the game. We alignment. live in a universe of resonance and vibration alignment life. meaning your thoughts your actions your beliefs are all in harmony yeah your yourself and those are all words that pointed aspects of yourself right so the more of um these trillion cells and the impulses they're creating and the and the synapses that are firing the i'm already getting into science speak but the more of those that can work together harmoniously in a single direction the more in alignment you are the more focused like an arrow with less resistance you are just exactly and that means maybe there's something more a little more mystical going on or um law of attraction kind of stuff resonance you know nikola tesla said that the universe works on a principle of resonance so you can think about it at that level but even if your brain structure and all of your little neural nets and subnets that make up your your brain if they're all on board with the thing you're trying to achieve, then you're going to be walking down the street and you're going to hear out of the corner of your ear somebody say something super relevant. And you'll stop and go, did you just say blah, blah, blah? And you'll, you know, you'll, you'll start, these opportunities will start showing up because more of your hardware is aligned with where you're going. Now, if instead half your brain is full of self-doubt or criticism or who am I or not good enough or... Or, or what about say half your brain is fit up with like, you know, I'm totally on board. I'm laser focused. I'm all about it. However, I've got a very busy family life. I've got so many other responsibilities that my head needs multiple, you know, like you, certainly in your entrepreneurial trop- journey, you were, uh, you know, you were, you didn't have a busy family life. You know, you could go all in on this one That's thing. Right. How, how do you manage juggling or is there any, like, obviously if you've got multiple things, it's probably going to dilute your capacity to focus like an arrow. I, I had to quit uh, my job at IBM because I knew I couldn't do what I needed to do in my spare time. So the people who manage to do things with uh, kids or another job or whatever, you have, you have to ask them. You have to have this, them on the show and ask them. The path I took was uh, minimalism and like the path of a samurai, right? No I'm like, plan B. No plan B, burn the boats. And also I'm, I'm going to do this as a broke recent graduate who is not putting in job applications anywhere 
And I even went dumpster diving and volunteered at a food shelter where they let me take the rottiest food at the end of the weekend that nobody wanted, that the, even the, the poorest families didn't even want, right? And I would take, the, so my lifestyle was going from crappy to crappy. It was not, it wasn't, it wasn't a big jump. You're, but you didn't care. You didn't were, care. you were, you, you were fighting your fight. That's what you alignment were. looks like. I'm happy going dumpster diving because I know that I don't have to be down at IBM anymore where my mind is being distracted uh, to their projects instead. So, so you were, to, to, you know, the way you'll often give this analogy, Steve, of there's three people, you know, lifting blocks, you know, and one person is lifting blocks because they're told to lift a block. The second person is lifting block because they're, you know, they're getting paid for it. And they're the building a wall. They're building, they're a, building wall. a wall. And the third person is lift, lift, lifting block because they're building a cathedral, the best cathedral you could ever have. And yeah. they're all doing the same function, but through their, their how they're looking at it, their attitude, the experience is very different. Exactly. And so, so the wall I'm building is... Uh, self-actualization, enlightenment, the freedom to pursue the questions of the universe. Um, Creation. Yeah. So that's what's driving me. Okay. So you described it in woo-woo language. Can you give it to us in science language or in yeah, more and technological I got into it language? In, in a little bit, but let's go with the, the Alignment the in technology speak. Yeah. So the, the, it's more like neuroscience speak that I'm using here, but the, the, the brain has neural networks. You know, there's, 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 groups of neurons that are more tightly integrated and less tightly integrated. And they actually, uh, the brain is, the magic of the brain is that some things are closely connected and other things are far apart. And so there's this, there's this really simplistic misconception that you want like all the neurons talking to all the neurons. No, that's bad. Like that's what happens when you come out as a baby and your brain now starts like, pruning those connections, getting rid of the ones that are not necessary. So our intelligence and our personality actually arises from some things being in closer relationship and some things being in farther relationship. So like Greystones wouldn't be what it was if it was in the heart of Dublin. You couldn't, you couldn't separate out a Greystones, right? It needs that distance. That's part of the magic that makes it what it is. So it's the same thing in the brain. And the issue with that setup is you can have pieces of your brain that are so disconnected that they're actually opposed to what you think you and your goals even are. They have totally different goals than yours. Opposite goals, goals to stop you from doing what you were going to do because starting that company is very risky. You could lose your life savings. You could, your reputation. What, what if it fails? You're going to be a laughing stock, right? So you have parts of yourself that are completely antagonistic toward what you think your stated goals are. And that's another way of being out of out of alignment. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Wow. Mm. So, how, yeah. so how does that technical? So that describes that your brain. So you've almost got like you've boxed away the bits of your brain, the, the doubting bits, and you've kind of all in and feeding, which in technical speak. But is there anything else in that technical aspect that it's like? So for anyone for from the manifesting type language, it's all everything all in, burn the boats, as you said. In total alignment. Yeah, in total alignment. And then in the more technical speak, it's more like box the bits, the, the doubters, the doubter aspects of your brain, put yeah. them in one box, lock you, them in the key and throw the... You've got a hundred billion neurons, which are kind of like transistors in a, in a computer processor. And so it's the difference between having a hundred billion neurons working toward your goals and solving your problems and 50 billion neurons working in this direction and 50 billion pulling in the opposite direction. That's, that's what alignment would look like in that more technical kind of neuroscience. Yeah, very well and then you go beyond that and say, well, I'm way more than 100 billion neurons. I'm actually a trillion cells. And there's actually a lot of wisdom and intelligence in the body. 
And what if my entire body head to toe is in alignment with the direction that I want to go? That's when it starts to look magical. That's when you start to look like Neo in the matrix, when every cell is, is, is resonating and pulling in the same direction. That's the matrix, the movie, you know, the, uh, and that one of my favorites. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Jeez, that's beautiful. And, and I'd love to lead now on to kind of the idea of some money. Money is, you know, they'll say in relationships, there's two biggest, there's two biggest things. Hang on, I just, okay, you can go ahead. No, just one little thing. And it's a short, it's a, almost like a bridge to where you want to get to. So suddenly you're in your early thirties, you've reached financial freedom. You probably don't have to work for the rest of your days. Is there an existential crisis? Yes. Because, because as humans, like for millennium, this is based on an yeah. evolutional principle that, you know, we spend our days trying to find food, have shelter and be secure. And suddenly you had enough finance or economic freedom that you could do all three of them so glad and you brought sit this up. in bed all day long. Yeah. So was that in itself yes. a huge existential yes. crisis? How do I find meaning? Yes. Suddenly, you're, suddenly you're actually living this nihilistic, be you're because actually experiencing My hundred billion neurons were mostly directed toward a goal that was now achieved. It's a bit like the Olymp, the weight what of gold. Do they do you, know, now? You, know that, you know that documentary about Olympians, and it's yeah. like it's called the weight of gold. Oh, like okay. suddenly they achieve sure. gold, and they're suddenly like, <laughs> yeah. "What do we do now?" Right? Just eat candy bars. You get on the Wheaties box after that, yeah. and that's it. You get on the yeah. cereal box, maybe, yeah. and you know, what else can you do? Yeah. yeah so, I, I I'm so glad you brought this up because I remember the morning that I realized I could do pretty much anything I wanted to do, and I laid, I opened my eyes in the morning, and I thought. Do I get up and brush my teeth and go to a cafe and have a cup of coffee? Or do I buy a plane ticket to Tokyo? Because I also want to see Tokyo. Boom! Right? And I and two hours later, I was still lying in bed staring at the ceiling. I had neither gotten up and brushed my teeth and gone to the cafe nor bought a plane ticket to Tokyo. That's what, that's what took too to many mind options. too many options. I, I even noticed like, and this is a, a quite a different analogy, but we're planning a kitchen, we're building a new house, myself, and my wife, like not me actually building, but we have a contractor, Jamie. And um, when he was saying you've every option, but he said, you need to put down some things with which to push against. Yeah, if exactly. you don't put down a few solids, we're going to be at this all year. Creativity and constraints is a thing. So that yeah. in your case, you suddenly had a lack of boundaries. Yeah. So suddenly it was like, most oh, most people wake up and they the two options, go to work or I've got a day off. You woke up and I don't have to go to work anymore. It's even a struggle to get to work. The kids need this and that. But they're like, the, the you know, they feel free just that they could get to work without having to get the kids brushed and on the bus and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So there's, it really shrinks the possibility set, but it gets rid of a lot of, uh, of that particular kind of existential crisis of too many, too many options. So how did you deal with it? You have to reinvent yourself again. And how did you do it? How did you, rather than speaking to the third uh, person, how did you address this? Did so you go into depression? I, did is I, you? Went, I went back, a pseudo depression. Yeah, a kind of depression. I mean, if it, depression is a very just general term. Yeah, I did go back well, into a depression. Depressed, you know, if you look at the etymology, yes, you're heavy, depressed, you're just some kind deflated, of... Deflated, the wind is out of your sails, you're in the doldrums, whatever. Yeah, right? you lack purpose. Yeah. So I had to... I had to figure out what the point of life looked like now. And this was a really beautiful uh, experience though, because I'm sitting there from my egoic self-perception saying, what is the point of my life now? Me, 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 what do I do? I, I, I. And then I loved writing. I, I loved writing since I was a teenager. So I just started writing this essay and it's called 
uh, I ended up titling it what the universe was doing before you got here. And the question I posed to myself was, wait, instead of just asking myself, what do I do with myself now that I have options? What if I could see if the universe was doing something regardless of my presence here? Was it up to something before I arrived, before I was here to have an existential crisis? Was the universe doing something? And I looked at the pattern of the universe so far as we know it, and you have something like the Big Bang and subatomic particles, and then they're getting together and forming uh, elements, and the elements are getting together and forming molecules and gases and crystals, and then those are getting together and forming planets, and that's getting together and forming, uh, you know, life, single cell life, and then those are getting together and forming tissues, and those are getting together and forming organs and creatures and animals and cultures and cities and us. And so I really could perceive this trajectory that matter and energy was not content to stay in a simplistic form. It was continually reorganizing itself into what I called increasingly meaningful complexity into increasingly complex shapes, but not just, and I started, I'm a huge lover of language and, and I, I mostly know just English, but I know a lot of English. And so I would look up words like uh, complexity is a positive word or maybe a neutral word. Convolution uh, means it's like a type of complexity that has a negative connotation to it. Uh, and uh, there's other words like that. So we have a lot of words that actually describe the kind of complexity that we're dealing with. Elegance. Elegance means it's just got the right amount of complexity and simplicity and balance, right? So we have these words that actually describe this quality. And I could tell that the universe was going through a process of of rearranging itself into increasingly elegant forms. And, and that was like a spiritual experience. I would actually, I was actually in the habit, I forget this now, but I was in the habit, I started to get into the habit of writing an essay every morning until I had an epiphany. And I, I mean, I would, I would sit there by myself and think, and I this would- is at home. That's at some home. pretty deep stuff. Like this would be before breakfast, like. Yeah, exactly. How long would it take you? Like an hour, half hour? It didn't matter at this point, you, just, you know? And sometimes it would take all day, sometimes take multiple days, but I would go until I had an epiphany and sometimes I would start crying because what I suddenly understood was so beautiful. And, and like, this was all understanding this, through your own thought process. Yeah. There's an aspect to channel or something. I don't know what box to put it in, but it's like, it's not what most of us are going through. Like This, this is why I believe in past lives at this point, because... Uh, you're a very interesting man, you know that. And I've been, I've been sort of like this since I was born, and that's why I'm just like, that's it. We some we show up with some imprints and memories of previous pursuits, I think, because this is a weird bent to have, yeah. And so I would, I was, I was addicted to epiphanies essentially. And epiphanies um, meaning through the, the process of writing and thought, there was realizations about. The nature Life of reality. The fundamental reality. nature of reality, which I told you guys when I met you, the was really my drive. That's what I wanted to know. What is this? What is this and what am I? Which is the greatest philosophical questions of any life on this planet, yeah. human life anyway. Yeah, yeah. So then I decided that my, my so, so once you realize that the universe is up to something, then the question is just, well, what if I got on board with what it's up to? And now you're in alignment, not just with yourself, but imagine you're in alignment now with a, overarching cosmic force that you're inside of. And that's where things get even more matrixy, right? Well, that's amazing. Yeah, right? 
Wow. Really so interesting you, that you're someone you, someone who speaks technology and isn't like you speak has California the training of really a nerd, well too. can also see this more philosophical, more spiritual language. They're but almost just to, to be able to describe it in like a in, in a physical in, in like a technical aspect. Yeah. That's why Somebody was like, oh, you should brand yourself as like a philosopher or something. I'm like, but I, I don't, if I say philosopher, people will think academic philosophy. You're not and, rooted uh, in pragmatism and practicality. No, I'm, I'm my own first principles, natural philosopher. I've studied some, some formal philosophy and more than the opinions of other philosophers who are dead, systems like epistemology were very helpful and so on. But um, I began to notice that there were people in history who I would call lovers of truth and seekers of truth. And I remember um, there was, uh, I was walking through a used bookstore, probably around the time that I was going through this existential crisis of, of unlimited options. And um, I walk through this used bookstore and I see the spine of a book and it says, the story of my experiments with truth. <laughs> and I, I get chills in my spine and I reach and I grab the book and I pull it off the shelf, and it's the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi. Wow. Oh, my God. And I burst into tears because I knew I had found somebody who thought like I did. And I just absorbed that book and saw that he, he lived life as if he were a billionaire, even though he gave it all away and had nothing. He still felt and saw that he had the freedom to act unlimited freedom to act. And what was he going to do with his life? He was going to um, help liberate people, help people to treat each other better, help raise the consciousness of humanity, um, help these British people, you know, who had inhabited his land to live up to the own Christian principles that they were espousing. It was really truth though. He said, All, everything you saw from my life was just my experiments with truth. And I knew I'd found somebody who... One of his phrases was yeah. key with us starting that be pair. You know, we must be the change we want to see in the world. Like it's that was famous, one of the yeah. huge things that just and driven One me. thing I'd love to do, you, so you, you were uncovering what the universe wanted to do. And as you said, you know, for anyone who wants to bring something into reality, try to get all your trillion cells in alignment and focused on one kind of goal. But when you can be in alignment with what the universe is trying to bring forth, well, now you've got and a force you could, to be You could use right. the word God, you could use divinity, you could use whatever, whatever might be. language. So how do you determine and what do you see as the universe is trying to do now? Because it's like, that sounds great. Yeah, okay, I've got a, this idea which I want to create. If I can get be in alignment with the universe, this is going to be a big wave. This is much more like... Wind at my back rather than mm -hmm. into the wind. Yeah, downhill, downwind. Mm -hmm. Woohoo! Now, you can still sabotage yourself, even though the universe is waiting there for you to get in alignment with it. That's what most people are doing, for sure. Yeah. Um, but to make this a little less lofty sounding for anybody listening who's yeah. thinking, oh, Jesus, I'm not, you know, a, some a philosopher, addict of realization like this kid, you know, but it's just like, let's just make this um, really bring it, bring it home. Every person listening, if they really just sat down for five minutes, they have a vision in their mind for one way to make the world more beautiful. Everybody does, if you really put it to them. And it could be that they know an elderly person in the neighborhood who doesn't have any company, and they know a family who could use somebody watching a child or being in the same room with their kids play or something. And their mind has noticed this disparity, 
and knows that if it introduced those people, it could create a more beautiful, the universe could become more beautiful. This elderly person sitting at home would have the purpose and the joy of, of being with this child and this child would have the experience of having an older person around. So, so that may be the little bit of alignment that you and the universe have. But if you act on that, that builds your psyche, that builds your soul, that builds your substance. Momentum, you're yeah. almost being positively reinforced. Exactly. So it's almost like acting on these impulses that, you know, the these impulses that are possibly connected to a much greater universe and actually... And that can seem a little like... Almost why, like intuition. Why would I do that? We're a little afraid. Right. Even if you look at the intuition, like our internal teacher. Well, and it could, but it could be the most significant thing you do yeah. all year. It could change the course of your life. You might do that... And then realize, oh my God, that's a, that's a business I could start or something, right? And I'm not saying that's a great business per se, but it's you take that step, and it is the little test that the universe has given you. It's a, it's saying you want to feel what it's like to be in alignment with me. Start here. It's not saying start with a multi million dollar company. Um, yeah, that's like that. class in alignment with me. And you said there, so a lot of people sabotage themselves. Yeah. What do you mean by that? And that might lead me on to something else. I'd love to hear what your thoughts on that. Well, if any part of the self is out of alignment, it's it's going to be sabotaging you because it's trying to prevent this outcome that, that, that it thinks is dangerous. And we talked about this, which is probably a really concrete example, is a lot of people kind of have the idea that they want to be really wealthy. We have the idea, I want to have loads it's of money to buy a house. kind of cultural narrative you know, that's like being sold. In lots of research, they'll ask people, you know, what, do you, what are the most important things in life? What are your most important things for your life? And number one is typically to become wealthy and number two is to become famous and then after that it kind of trickles down. So yeah, a lot most of people, people... Most people don't want either. Yeah, I know. But really. could, could you expand on why... And this was a beautiful conversation we had earlier. Because deep down in their subconscious mind, neither of those things feels like a safe course of action. They, When it comes down to it, if they were to suddenly have $10 million, would their friends still like them? Would their friends like them for the right reasons? Would, or would their, would their friends treat them badly just like they had, you know, they'll remember the, the, the hundred things, the hundred negative things that their friends and family have said about rich people uh, since they were a child. And that's all in there somewhere. And there's an identity, a self-identity that says, wow, if I became a wealthy person, I wouldn't actually fit in with my friends and my family. And that'd be terrible. So from evolutionary perspective, like tribe and community and family are so endemic to being part of the human experience and yeah. existence and staying alive. Yeah. So subconsciously, we quite possibly... We, we don't many want to step of outside be, of the tribe or above we, the tribe. We don't want to like... Yeah, might risk our chance of survival. They mightn't like us. They mightn't support us. It's like, oh my God, I, my family don't like yeah. me, you know. And there's also a self, there's, a, there's a, a self image that we all have about ourselves. Like if we were to hypnotize you and have you imagine who you are and what you look like and what your life looks like, there is a self image. There's a representation you have of yourself. And if your reality around you st stops matching your self image, you will work subconsciously to bring your reality back into alignment with your self-image. And most people, that self-image is not of a wealthy person or a famous person. So how does someone listening kind of go, well, okay, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. You know, how do we go about changing this self-image, this deep-rooted, because they're deep, they're really Can, can they're I give really one deep. example of that self-image? Yeah. I, I remember always, it was a friend always said it. He had a friend who like, in terms of good looks, he was like, 
a five out of ten. But he always was with girls who were nine out of ten. Of course, because yeah. he saw himself much better, totally. and he typically go for girls that saw themselves as a five, and that was how. Yeah. It, obviously, this is removing any personality or any other bits, yeah. but this was his little simplified way. And I yeah. just wonder, is that that's an example, an example of it? Okay. Yeah, there's a person who Crude has example. confidence, and their self-image is <clears throat> of a confident person, and they've got, for whatever reason, they believe they've got the goods to give this girl a nice time, mm-hmm. and somebody else who looks ten times better. They don't feel that way about themselves, and and they might, they might uh, know that they look better, but they think, oh my God, if I was alone with this person, I wouldn't even know what to do or whatever, right? And what so, to say or yeah, and so it's it it is that um, the image we have of ourselves. Now, uh, sometimes I feel like the whole name of the game about life is really being honest with ourselves, and then of course being honest with other people, but like, we are rarely honest with ourselves even. And so if a person were really, really introspective and really honest with themselves, they, they could say, how do I really feel about money? Let's just imagine that I had $10 million. Like, what do I actually feel? And oh, their stomach starts grumbling immediately, you know, and they start having images of whatever being robbed or, or canceled or who knows what, right? You'll start, you'll start, if you really introspect, you'll start seeing the negative imagery of, of what's going to happen. So people are just too busy and distracted and, and um, aren't practiced at that kind distract of... Themselves or subconsciously yeah. Well, subconsciously not. Like, you know, they don't like want you're it. saying... They say they want it, but they don't want it. That's the and reality. they also don't know how... This is, this is what bothers me the most about humans at this point in society is how bad we are at debugging our own code. And that's... that's only someone who's a technical computer person could describe it like they're debugging our own code. Yeah. It's an amazing way of looking at it that we it's all like, we all have an operating. Speak, you're saying, get ourselves into alignment. Yeah, and, but essentially, like we all have our operating systems, our means of seeing the world and interacting with the world, and it's very much out of alignment as you've described it for and, many of us. And my wife, who's a clinical psychologist, would say we all have trauma, which is getting in the way of pursuing they are potentially bugs absolutely or debugging your own code is another language that's yeah. an inc- i've never heard it described like that, that that what a title for a book debugging our own code i don't know if it's necessary i don't know if it's the best i don't know if it's right about masses but it's a really interesting way of looking at things mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. wow what a an, an to summarize that little nugget in essence you're saying the more one is in, in alignment in terms of finance like what they actually want and what their actual subconscious and what their actual self-worth is, the more you're going to achieve what it is that you really want. Because yeah. you might say you want to be a millionaire, but your actions, your beliefs are totally different. Yeah. There's a huge part of your mind that you're not privy to that really doesn't and actively will stop you. And the only way you're going to get privy to that is to actually look inside. And to look inside. And you can do that through journaling, yourself. through introspecting, even things like um, hypnosis. And there's various kind of psychological mod- modalities that work with being in an altered state. And they make, uh, it's kind of like putting the computer into safe mode. If you remember back in those days, you'd have to debug the computer and you have to put it in safe mode because it was hard to debug it while it was running all those programs. So you reboot into safe mode and now you have a very simplistic version of the operating system there and you can find the bugs more easily. And that's any psychological modality kind of fits into like either just talk therapy, we're working at this level, or it puts you into an altered state of consciousness that's kind of like a safe mode to do some... And what about psychedelics? Is that something that safe mode and you can go into the... That's safe mode and beyond. That's like um, that, that can even set up a whole nother 
mm, awareness to then like look at yourself from a perspective that you might have really struggled to see before. That's a very common experience. Uh, therapeutic dissociation, you might call that. Mm. Yeah. Incredible. I'm enjoying this so much. There is, however, many other things we need to talk about. Yeah. So one thing you're Why wearing... is this guy wearing a hat? This is yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so just, just to take the context. So, so we've, we've delved deep into the entrepreneurial thing and the kind of bringing things into reality in life. I'm just texting my wife to say I'm going to be late if that's okay. Sorry. Okay, yeah, cool. I'll probably need to do the same. Because this is amazing. I'm yeah. enjoying this so much. Like, it really is incredible. And um, we need to kind of go with... So the, the chronological aspect of this is fascinating because we're up to now your, your mid-30s, your early 30s. You've, you're financially completely free and you don't have a job. And you're having these... You're journaling. You're looking at the nature of reality and you're kind of going, okay, well, I've managed to create... This business, which gave me financial freedom, it helped the world to some degree, but how can I align myself more with the cosmos, the universe, whatever way, and create, and it's ultimately into creator good. And since then, you've got a company, you know, you've got more into the charity aspect or into the humanitarian serving, aspect. Serving. Mm -hmm. Service. Service. Well, in that book of Gandhi's, I got to see this, this servant life, life being lived. Um, this is before we, there's one more thing I want to say about money because it's just Great. fascinating. Yeah, right. and I love this. I'd love to delve more into Which this. Which is, you will meet wealthy people who don't care about money. They had some other goal, like they wanted to make. Like I don't, I don't know that James Cameron cares about money. He loves making movies, though. You see, he really and he loves having the resources to produce. But that's the thing that our society doesn't celebrate. It's like the money is the outcome of doing something right. beautiful that you love. Right. And that is a value. But the important thing about these kind of people is they at least don't have negativity toward the money. No. So, just, I, so just that was just a little clarification for your listeners. It's not that they all get whipped up in a frenzy of wanting money and diving through pools of money, but you at least need to not be opposed to it and antagonistic toward it. And if you can get to that point, and then you can find what you love in life and what is your passion, you may find you become wealthy you know, making and doilies, it doesn't, it doesn't much matter. You're still so, doing would, so, so obviously you said about debugging your own code. Yeah. You've got to first realize that you have a bug, as in you've got a way of looking at money, which is subconsciously negative, yeah. and try to somehow unravel that. And yeah. probably... And I'll give you an example. Like, if, like whenever my company, whenever an acquirer came around to buy my company and the deal fell through, I would feel a huge sense of relief. Wow. And one day I caught it. And I go, whoa, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Like most people would be thrilled to have more money come in, right? So I had, I noticed that and I said, wait a minute, this means that I am afraid of selling the company. I'm afraid, what is it, you know? I'm afraid of the freedom. I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of, honestly, at this point, I, I still, you know, thought wealthy people were all douchebags. I didn't want to be a wealthy person. I just, I, I, I was convincing myself at this point that I still wasn't a wealthy person. I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted, but I didn't identify as a, a wealthy person. And you know. were taking a large salary at that point. Yeah, exactly. So, so I was already so, happy. I was already content. I was uh, in and, equilibrium. And you were already reasonably wealthy. <laughs> yeah. To most. And how did you debug your own code then? Because you caught this one little, you know, Action. seed... And some I managed to dig it out, like yeah. Thankfully, I had a I had a, a good um, uh, executive coach at the yeah. time who helped me um, figure out a lot of this stuff. A wonderful uh, woman named Brandy Gilmore. She she pointed out a lot of this stuff to me. Executive coach, mm -hmm. therapist, different yeah. clothes on a similar 
creature and possibly different languages. Well, you really, you, it's really nice to have somebody in your life whose job it is to point out your blind spots. Um, it's, it's, so it could be mentor, executive coach, but therapist. It could be a friend possibly, or is it better having someone, a third party person that doesn't necessarily, isn't involved in No, your if life? you have good friends, if yeah. you have good friends like that, but if, yeah. but if, um, if your friend is also broken, not successful and whatever, then maybe they're not going to be able to spot yeah, it, right? Yeah. They've got the same bug, right? But yeah, so yeah, each person has to decide uh, what outside observer is right for them. But that's, that's another hundred billion neurons looking in at your life. And that's, and that's very powerful. And again, if you look at a, uh, a computer or a motherboard, you've got tons of processors on that motherboard. You don't just have one CPU. You've got chips watching chips, monitoring the output of different chips. It's a distributed network kind of thing, right? So, so it's great to it's have... Um, more powerful than text to even understand. Um, yeah. Okay, so, so the idea, like, that makes a lot of sense because... You know, as you said, when you're debugging the code of a computer, you, you, you will most likely need help with it. You may not know how to do it yourself. So literally you could bring in another programmer and they could spot something that you've been overlooking. I remember yeah. I had this program. I couldn't, I couldn't debug it or a friend couldn't, he, he could not debug this program. And I looked at this damn thing and it said something, you know, plus equals, and it was supposed to say equals plus. And it wasn't throwing an error. It was just doing the wrong thing. It was doing what it was being told, you know, and it's like his it eyes were glazing time. over. He couldn't see that, you know, so you bring that in. And, and I'm, I bet you, you all have a community. I bet you notice patterns in other people's lives around you that they don't notice about themselves. Well, even as an works. identical twin, like, yeah. so we're genetically, you know, 90, we're genetically as close as you get, really. Yeah, yeah. But it's so much easier for me to judge Stephen's life, which I'm quite good at. Yeah. And Stephen's you know, very frustrating. Yeah. But it's so much easier to see faults in, because sure. he's not me and he can see so much faults in me. It's yeah. so much easier. Yeah. Like, no, I don't, can't, David. <laughs> Obviously, it's harder for you, you know. One of you sees faults and the other one's just projecting. Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> but, but like, I had a friend who was uh, in a very, um, like, difficult, almost suicidal state. And... And he's calling me up and he's just like, I know self-love is the answer, but I can't break through. And I was like, yeah, that's right. Like self-love is the answer in some weird way, but it's not, it's not the right answer for him right now. And suddenly I had it. I said, forget self-love. You don't even have self-like. You don't even treat yourself with the decency that you treat strangers on the street. I see you be so kind to a waiter who just did like an adequate job at a restaurant. You don't even treat yourself with the same level of kindness. And he exploded into tears. That was the realization he needed at that moment. He wasn't going to see it because he That's was a nice one. fixated on the self-love thing, which was 10 steps up on the ladder of where he needed to be. He needed to stop punching himself in the face and just be decent toward himself, right? And I could, in that moment, I could spot that and he couldn't, right? So to the extent we can do that for each other, that's a, that's real community. Yeah. Mm, but it's like, that. particularly on this thing, because we live in such a money centric world, you know, capitalism, money is very important for life. And what you've described is a really interesting thing, debugging the code of one's how one relates with money because when you look at relationships the two biggest issues which crop up in relationships is money and sex yeah. you know and money is a big one and certainly you know i can see in myself my own upbringing i i definitely could do it looking at my code and going my relationship with money and i'm sure i'm not the only one who's listened to this podcast who's going yeah, yeah actually this makes sense like yeah. there's definitely issues of frugality or scarcity or how to let this flow because as you said like nicholas tesla who was you know, was an incredible physicist and inventor and all sorts of things. And he 
he described the universe as a universe of resonance, that if we are, we are open ourselves up, now this is quite metaphysical in California speak or woo-woo speak, but it's at, at a physical level, as a physics level, it's also very correct that we are energetic creatures yeah. that are tuning forks. And if we tune our, our frequency to a certain frequency, the same way you, you ring a chord A on a guitar, A will be resonated back if an instrument is nearby. So we, this is... Well, you know what you're reminding me of? Um, remember that essay I told you about, the, yeah. what the universe was doing before you got here? And I remember now when I broke down into tears and it was the last paragraph that I wrote as I was thinking about the universe creating complexity and meaningful complexity. And then I said, wait a minute, what is the single most complex creation ever to arise in the universe? As far as we know, human, it's you and me, mm, possibly. As far as we know, the egoic human would definitely come up with that. Yeah, anyway. but wait, don't 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 brush past the 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 because this could save somebody's life out there if they realized how special they were, right? You don't want to yeah. jump to the humility of like, oh, but there might be something smarter than me out there. Like, just rest at this point. And I said in the known universe, right? Yeah. And so it's like um, the single most concentrated point of complexity that we know of, as far as raw number of interconnections is sitting on top of your shoulders and mine right now in a universe that as far as we can tell is mostly empty space and mostly dead. That's weird in a beautiful way. Like that alone, if you really grasp that, that the universe is mostly empty space and the most, the most concentrated point of complexity is you and I, this, this, it's just dotted with these little points of concentrated complexity and there's nothing more complex. A dolphin's not more complex, a, a whale, an elephant, they're all beautiful creatures, but like pound for pound, you've got the most, you've got the most complexity. So you are in the known universe, the paragon of creation, the apotheosis of creation. Nice words. And so, and so we are, what made me think of it is we are the most advanced supercomputer in the known universe right now. And we have just barely begun to learn how to program ourselves. Okay, that, that, that gives a wonderful segue. I just want, and we're going to touch on it briefly before we talk about your hat. Um, AI. AI oh, is that's something that's, that's a segue. That's, can we give just five minutes on AI? Yeah. Just five minutes. Last, I know last, we could... last time we, we talked about AI in a podcast, <laughs> it was like 45 minutes later and we went and it was such a twist to the tale. Okay, I'm going to tell your wives to come on down in three hours. Let's do a chapter two. Let's do a chapter okay, two and do AI. AI and stuff. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, there's okay. no way. Because I know you're really it's into It's one of that. my favorite subjects. And last time you said to me, last time you said to me, I've just got one question. That was like, so, no. Okay, let's come back here tomorrow and do yeah, more of this yeah, is, I'm having so much fun I had to take out my journal now to take notes <laughs> so that, that's about as high a compliment as I can give it was like this stuff coming out of your mouth is gold the happy pair the world's best pesto and great conversations about AI together at last boom let's do yeah. it man. and chocolate we got some really yeah, good yeah, chocolate, chocolate. bean sport chocolate here okay what? so in to go where you were trying to go 20 minutes ago so I've got, I've got this, I'm emerging from this existential crisis I realize that the universe is, is creating beautiful and meaningful complexity and I'm, I've studied the life of Gandhi and service and all this. And then so I just, what, I, what was profound about Gandhi's life is he went looking for very simple problems around him. Like he was vegetarian mm. and he was ruled by ago. people who didn't believe that vegetarians were a thing. Like literally most, most uh, of the English at the time thought you needed 
meat, not just meat. They thought you needed beer. They thought you needed beer and meat to be healthy. right? And he says to them, literally, he would go give these polite speeches and say, vegetarians are possible. They are real. And in fact, you are now inhabiting a country of several hundred million vegetarians. And he would say it, like not taking the piss or anything, he would just say it in a very helpful way, trying to educate them, trying to educate the occupiers How of How would it country. be received? Not well, you know, mm. not well. But- Well, that hasn't changed in like, what, since he died. Like, you know, if you say you're a vegan now- It's or trending a, a bit more. Trending a little more, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, the... like four people showed up to the Vegetarian Society meeting, you know, when he would <laughs> hold it, you know, uh, 80 years ago or whatever. But anyways, I just noticed how he just looked for very- practical, uh, any opportunity to make the world a better place. And so when I went looking for uh, the next problem to solve, I noticed that my, a lot of my family members were sick with chronic diseases and just unhealth, unhealthfulness. Right. And, uh, so I didn't know what that was about. And I thought, well, gee, I, instead of going and trying to solve global problems, this, I've got problems at home here, you know, so let's try to go get to the bottom of those. And I kid you not, that's when I realized that like food is a thing and the quality of food is a thing and the food system is a thing. And, um, and so I just, in the same way that I felt really cheated by religion growing up and filling my head with things that weren't true, I now felt like everything I'd been taught about the food system was a lie and everything I'd been fed was mostly a lie. It wasn't real food. In a sense, philosophically, there's not much truth in those food products, right? They're pr- pretending to be food. The nutrients were poor. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I just started growing my own food. I said, I've got to start from first principles. I'm going to plant my own seeds. I'm going to grow food. Where were you living at the time? North Carolina. And so I started in the windowsills of my apartment because I really didn't know if a seed would actually grow. And then in December, in the middle of winter, I had cucumbers and tomatoes in my apartment. And that was profound. That was important. And, um, and then I thought, well, this is incredible. Let's go do this outside where it's supposed to be. And then I thought, well, I don't need a lot of space. And so I, I started a community garden. And this is, this is where I'm like, I joke about being an introvert, but like I started the community garden by myself and I just built it by myself. Maybe one friend came over, you know, one day. And then when it was finally done, I opened it up. And did you up. buy land or did you? This was in an apartment complex where I was living. I just got permission to do it. Wow. I got permission to do it. And, um, and I didn't, uh, before that I'd wanted to do a, a, a compost because I realized that I was going to eat the plants, but I knew so little about the food system. I literally said to myself, what is it that plants eat? I eat the plants. What do plants eat? And I didn't know. And I said, like, well, I think they eat fertilizer. And so I went down to the hardware store, you know, where they sell lawnmowers and weed whackers and things. And there was this aisle of fertilizer and it's, and weed killer. I think it's all in the same aisle and it smelled awful plastic and just, I just, I like, I feel my life force like being damaged as I walk down this aisle. And I thought that can't be what powers plants. That's, that doesn't make any sense. Just, it doesn't, the arrows don't match up, you know, it's like, so I went, I eventually, didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. And I went asking around and then somebody said, oh, the plants will eat compost and, uh, or you should put compost and on light it. And water. But in light and yeah, water. I knew that yeah, part, yeah, okay. but I think I got into the point where, um, some plants I, that were doing well stopped doing well. They'd, they'd yielded fruit and then they, had, they were no longer being nourished. They had plenty of water and plenty of sun, right? So this is where I was like, what's going on? Oh, they need more than that. They need these nutrients, right? And so that's when I discovered that at least half of what I was putting in 
the trash every day didn't belong there. It belonged back in the food system. And I just really couldn't believe what I was reading, that if you did this you know, beautiful recipe correctly, the microbes would wake up and it would turn it all back into this dark black soil. And so I did that. And um, I didn't have enough content at first. I just was a single guy. and I didn't so, produce... so what you're talking about really is composting for anyone yeah. who's listening. Yeah, yeah. composting. And um, so I went around door to door to my neighbors in this apartment complex. And I said, I need your help. I have heard that I can make this compost stuff out of food scraps. I've seen pictures on the internet. I don't know if it works, but I need a lot more volume than I have. Would you help me out and start bringing your food scraps? to this compost bin. Good work for an introvert calling around to the neighbors. Oh, yeah, and it took a lot. This is like 10 years ago now. It's not as bad as asking people for $300,000 to track their buses, though, right? So it's burned off a bit at this point. Um, But still took some doing to go around and and ask those people. And they all said, sure, I'm happy to help. And within a couple of weeks, they were filling, we were filling this thing up together, and they were coming out and dropping off their banana peels and they were asking me questions, you know, what about my paper towels and the tea bags and the coffee filters? And I'm like, yeah, I think pretty much anything that was once alive and the coffee filter is made of like wood pulp and that used to be a tree. So I think you can put that in there. And I just got obsessed with it. I got obsessed with the process. Everything really, in alignment. In alignment. Everything threw in alignment. myself at it. Threw myself at it. As like, this was the new computer. This was like the, you know, the compost processing unit, right? The CPU. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you're talking about in alignment with the universe as well, this is like, you know, the nature of life is turning life yeah. back into life. Like, yeah. You know, so I would say this was aligned at, the, at that level as well. Yeah. This, um, so yeah, it's different if you're trying to get in alignment with, I don't know, Lamborghinis and bikini models or something like maybe that's your Dharma. I don't know. But this, this was where the universe wanted me to go, I think. So, um, um, Lo and behold, within a, a few months, I got my neighbors together and we scraped away the leaves and stuff and pulled out this jet black nourishing soil. And I think some of us cried because we just we just realized we were all adults at this point that we had been throwing the earth away when the earth could heal itself and power itself and give back to us if we just were just decent toward it, right? And did this thing. And we also felt a bit gypped because we'd all had college educations as well and nobody had ever told us about this. You don't learn that in computer science. You don't, you know, so it's like, it seems like basic operating information about being a human hadn't been taught to us. And so this really beautiful scene unfolded of doing the compost together you know, I'd get a bottle of wine in a boombox on a Friday night and I'd put it out there and we'd people come by and we'd shovel and turn this thing. And then the community garden was right there. And I really watched this beautiful, holistic, quasi-spiritual, you know, heaven, slice of heaven on earth uh, emerging from this little patch of scraggly grass that, you know, used to have nothing going on there except for, you know, dogs. So like a little away. Eden is forming. A little Eden was forming, yeah. And then each person... I watched how much transformation continued on in their life. They started eating more organic because they said, wait a minute, if I'm putting the banana peel in there and that's going to go in our garden and there's chemicals on the banana peel, then maybe I shouldn't be buying the ones with chemicals anymore. It literally, you know, people say behavior change is difficult, but what I discovered was that... Once it's integrated and they can actually see the causality of their actions. With feedback loops, the mind updates easily. Jeez, you go back into technological speed. Personal change via technology speak. Yeah. 
And what's funny is when I went to, when I went to university, like what I actually wanted to study was cybernetics, which wasn't really a thing uh, being taught there, but it, that was all about feedback loops and systems. And it was kind of like, you know, the brain is a giant, you know, a concentrated nervous system. And so this notion of feedback loops of information, whether organically or, or digitally, they just, they were, there was something that gripped me about them. So yeah, the feedback loops were happening. Well, yeah. one thing that was fascinating that a friend Charles Dowding always said, like to have a true, and this isn't, this was just, I thought it was fascinating. He, he had a local box scheme and he used to, you know, give people, uh, they, they'd get their veg and they'd give back the compost. And he said, if it was to be truly closed loop, they should be giving me their feces and their urine too. Oh, of course. And I just thought that was like, no, I think because that's just nutrients. Like that's yeah. just, so you have to have a gateway experience for people. Oh, absolutely. And that's yeah, starting that's, with the banana peels and the coffee grounds. I'm going way out there, but I was but just within a few months of doing that, they come to that realization themselves. And that's, what's beautiful. So that's, that's to, to really cut to the chase years later when I was looking for another way to have an impact on the planet. And I had, I had gone on and, from the community garden and started an urban farm and said, let this, this community garden is so beautiful. Let's scale this up and do a full acre and let's not do it in my little apartment complex. Let's do it in the middle of the city center where people will have to see it. They'll have to ask the question of where does food come from? Cause they'll be driving by it on their way to work and say, Oh my God, what is that? It's a bunch of kale growing tomatoes. You know, I wanted them to see it and that worked out well. And so then later on when I was looking for, um, a way to really bring about a lot of change planet wide, I couldn't get out of my head the amount of transformation I had seen as the neighbors made that new living soil together out of their food scraps. The change in their identity. We've talked a lot about identity. But up to that moment, all, all any of us had done was make garbage. Up to that moment, all any of us had done was take a toll on the planet and consume the planet. This was the first time we had ever done something where we had aided the planet in its regeneration. And the moment we saw that happen, it gave us a new identity for ourselves. And so I realized that the most important thing I could do with humanity where it is right now and all the challenges it's facing would be if I could scale this experience of making soil together in community because I knew it completed so many feedback loops and it gave people a new identity, which is what we need going forward. Wow, and I love the fact that it's togetherness because yeah. there's something about working side by side in the land or on the land together that is really healing, cathartic, cleansing, humanizing, connecting, yeah. hugely connecting. The only place where the same amount of microbial biodiversity is the human microbiome is the soil. Exactly. Yeah. So there's something really. But what you're saying there is what's, what I think what made it so catalytic the first time around in your community block is that people are putting their food scraps in it's turning into soil and then there's the garden right beside right it. beside it. they're seeing so, the whole thing so you're seeing the whole thing which which is a very you know it's gonna it's gonna the feedback loop there is really really quick it's completing another feedback loop yeah. over there and then they're yeah. eating it and they're going that tastes way better than anything i've ever bought it's completing another feedback loop right there's no substitute for these. You can't really like documentary your way toward these experiences and that's mm -hmm. why the more that we can scale these kind of experience because now that leads on to so your current project it's a charity it's yep. called make soil yeah and essentially how i understand it is 
it's a it's a global movement where you've got a map and people can look at their local town wherever they are and start their own composting community yeah. where people come in and they put their compost in their garden like Harold literally started one yesterday yeah. up in Delgany and Greystones if anyone's to dump compost Harold's collecting hump, compost and making soil and together people make soil together That's right. and is part of that that people can start growing together is yeah because the, yeah, yeah so we call we call people like Harold the soil maker so that came to me as like oh to, to help facilitate the new identity it's nice to have a new title and so soil maker is pretty cool and so we call them the soil maker and that humble little compost bin becomes a soil site because now it's a place where the community is is coming and we have this software platform you know which is kind of my forte i'm kind of doing the same thing for compost bins that i did for the public transit systems essentially you have this this decentralized or public infrastructure that's really underutilized and so in the same way that we had buses going up and down the street with nobody on them, except the bus driver, that didn't make any sense because nobody knew where it was. We have compost bins that have one person using them when there could be five neighbors using them. And so we're finding every person on earth who's composting. And if that's you listening, then please pay, pay attention right now because this is for you. You become a soil maker. You join the platform as a soil site and we begin matching just the right number of neighbors to participate for your What's capacity. What's the sweet spot? Well, it depends on each person's technique and they get to set that themselves. Yeah. Nice. And just for anyone listening, a lot of municipal, and this is from our own experience of having a, a food business for almost 20 years, a lot of municipal, that's like town composting facilities, typically aren't composting it so they can come back as soil. Typically, they're actually going incinerating it yeah. and bringing back kind of like potash. That's to your you understanding. Know. That's to my limited understanding. But well, it differs wherever as, you go, but yeah. those... I want to say that those programs are better than nothing. Absolutely. But in some cases, depending on how many trucks they had to build and how, how the shape of the routes and how many miles per gallon those things get. It well, often isn't it food waste put through into like, say, landfill gives off meat extra meat. You want to keep it out of the landfill. And, and that's what's so beautiful about this um, act of, of, of composting together, of making soil together is immediately you're doing a good thing for the planet by keeping it out of, out of the landfill. Yeah. Um, you're putting nutrients back into the food system. Not, you know, if that goes to the landfill, it's not just the, the greenhouse gas off gassing. Those nutrients that the food system depends on are taken out of circulation for like a thousand years. Who knows when we'll harvest nutrients out of a landfill for the food system, like if ever, right? So you need to stop those nutrients hemorrhaging into landfills, which is happening in most places worldwide right now. Most cities don't have any kind of uh, curbside pickups. Like in essence, this movement is connecting people to soil. It really is. And understanding with soil comes food because all nutrients in food come from soil. And ultimately, like even it was Dan, oh, I can't remember his name. Dan. Saladina. No, Dan, who wrote a book called The Third Plate, and he spoke about research. Dan Barber. Dan Barber, who spoke about research in the Midwest where economic prosperity and educational levels were linked to topsoil quality. Wow. As topsoil yeah. became eroded, educational level, economic prosperity were almost directly correlated and mm -hmm. even there was research in the midwest of the states and that was like three years ago showing that as topsoil eroded economic prosperity significantly declined mm -hmm. due to loss of harvest and crops even even more subtly mental health you reach into uh, and grab a handful of living soil that's microbially rich and i've felt this sensation and other people have reported it as well i think all those microbes are communicating to your skin that look, the earth is alive. Like you live 
in a living system, not just some place where there's raw materials to harvest, like you learn in economics or something, right? But you're part of a giant living system. And this microbial world is the same one that birthed and evolved you over millions of years, you know? And so I think even just touching the living soil does, does powerful things to the mind. We, we, we went up to a friend recently who he's uh, an amazing guy. We had him on the podcast. He's, they call him the death metal, um, Lord. Oh, yeah. Lord. I heard about this guy. Really interesting guy. He's rewilding. This he's got the second biggest landowner in Ireland. Lord. He's rewilding nearly half of it. And he talks about the journey where he's, so he's rewilding about 600 acres. Yeah. And he's been doing it the last 10 years. And b- before that, that was just farmland. It was cattle, agricultural cattle land. So really monoculture, cattle out there. It was, and there was no real, there wasn't massive biodiversity that meant animal and species were completely declining year on year. And over the last 10 years, it's like the amount, I haven't seen, there's an amazing benefit of biodiversity and we were up there, you know, only last week and the amount of bugs, the amount of butterflies, the amount of life just booming and blossoming from there. And I was kind of chatting to him and saying like, over the last decade, have you found your own connection, your own intelligence, your own intuition, whatever it might be, whatever word you choose to input there, has kind of changed. Obviously, it's going to happen over time, but because he's now in this, mm-hmm. living in this environment, which is so much more microbes, life, um, Diverse. diversity, and he is a product of that environment, yeah. is his own yeah. experience changing? And like what I'm saying might sound stupid, but it's... We, most of us live in urban environments. We we don't live in gardens. We don't spend that much time in nature. And when you, the more we interact with the natural world, which is very diverse, the more our thinking and our feeling and our being and our alignment is and more empathy. Yeah. So I I have two phrases to describe what you're describing, and I call it uh, ecosystem consciousness. So when you talk about the diversity that this uh, this gentleman is immersed in, he's immersed in a more robust ecosystem than was there before. And that ecosystem, as you observe it and live among among it, it begins to repattern the brain. And I, I believe actually change the brain structure into something that's more resonant with ecosystems. So so the part of the reason we're doing so much damage to the planet is because the lack of, of immersion in ecosystems is leading to a, a simplistic brain structure. So, uh, so you've got like a four bit resolution on a 64 bit situation, right? You don't have the resolving capacity in the brain to understand how to take care of the planet. Well, whereas when you get that ecosystem consciousness, it becomes intuitive. You can feel when you're out of alignment, you can feel that this is doing damage to the planet. You can feel that that plastic is, is, is not going to go back into the system. You, you have that the ecosystem consciousness is like a new kind of software that gets loaded into your brain. And then you just start wanting to do the right thing. You don't need climate change numbers to scare you or anything like that. You just want to increasingly harmonize with that environment and you have more earth empathy. You're, yeah. you're such an amazing, unique individual because you've got this incredible binary computer technical background and then you've got this absolute like earth conscious love which is like they're almost like two different worlds and it's such a unique perspective to hear you talk because you can speak to the you know to the spiritual kind of more you know empathetic connected type person to someone who's much more scientific and they're two different languages yet you can articulate them it's very unique it's why i think i'm here it's the, the the world in the in the civilization. I really appreciate that, that yeah. compliment. But 
almost everything about human civilization is technological. And almost everything technological is out of harmony with natural ecosystems right now. And so we need this kind of unifying intelligence that brings and harmonizes these forces. And we're just at the very beginning of it. And ultimately, one of the greatest intelligence on this planet is soil. And the biodiversity of it, its ability just to function and synthesize and turn death into life. Yeah. yeah, it's been a pleasure. So in terms of make soil, for anyone listening who's yeah. inspired and goes, yes, I'm into it. I was sold a materialistic dream. You've been there. You've done that. Soil sounds fascinating. I'm in. How do I learn more? How do I get involved? Yeah, What's your exactly. pitch to get people yeah. psyched about it? Anybody out there who knows how to compost, we need you as a soil maker. And even someone who's pursuing materialistic gain and the 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 possibly the false um you're you're running out of words yeah, okay, now. sorry i, I was running out of words going to go i was i'll stop it, well and anybody out there who doesn't know how to how to compost or make soil but who feels when they're putting the food scraps into the trash that they just don't belong there they can feel that that's not in alignment with how the planet works just please sign up at make soil it's a non-profit what we're going to do is we're going to either match you with a soil site immediately, a neighbor who's willing to accept those food scraps, and you're going to love it, or just sign up, and then the moment that a soil site pops up on the map, the system will start matching you. The code will go to work matching you. And so that's an example of technology harmonizing human civilization with the biosphere. And that's that we need more technology like that we need more technology in service to the biosphere and that this is one example so part of what's important about this project and participating is that as people participate in this they'll see opportunities like this in other industries in their jobs in their fields because we need more of that kind of harmonizing energy in every industry right now you're a gift you're oh, an absolute gift you. you're really Josh really loved that great conversation I, I am so many great stories I am in absolute Fabulous. awe I really am I'm Thank you. So it's makesoil.org? Makesoil.org, yeah. Okay, brilliant. Charity, yeah. you know, if you're inspired, go check it out because it's really, it's, yeah. you know. Thank you. And I've this. been inspired by you too. This is an incredible thing. Your, your regenerative, uh, benevolent uh, mini kingdom over here. It's been a, <laughs> I've been well nourished by it and uh, some of the happiest people I've ever met, to be honest. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Yeah. And stay tuned for... Two? Yeah, sure. we, yes! AI coming soon! Woo! Well, let's see more Thank of this. Philos philosophy. You're a philosopher. Like, you really yeah, are. You're that's, unique. That's kind of our sweet spot. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, it's yeah. been a pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank beautiful, you. beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Woo! Love that.